You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for tuning in to the show and I'll just jump right in. One of the things I want to talk about first is some more about the doctrine of hell. I mentioned this maybe two podcasts or so ago and just got a, a whole lot of emails about it. There was a lot of confusion about just the doctrine of hell in general. And I think I saw more clearly what, what part of the problem is here. And it's it's our fault. It's it's preachers and teachers and and people that know the Bible. It's 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 our fault because we know the doctrine of hell is complicated and takes a long time to explain. But we have settled for this kind of theological shorthand that is not technically accurate. That is basically saying, well. When you die, you go to heaven or hell, which is not true. Nobody's technically in heaven right now, and nobody's technically in hell right now. Um, they're in a different place we'll talk about in a minute. But but we all know that. It's just standard, known, biblical theology. It's just doctrine. But because we have not been forthcoming, possibly due to laziness, I don't know what, but because we, we're not clear on that point, it has just left the door wide open for false teachers and preachers who then can do the one thing that a cult or false teaching situation needs desperately, which is to have some kind of truth, whatever it is, that is not widely believed or perceived to be not widely believed by the vast majority of Christians, therefore activating the pride and elitism thoughts and feelings that are necessary to make any false teaching actually stick. This is just base psychology stuff. You know, it's the idea that, oh, now everybody's into that band, you know, so I don't like it anymore, you know. It's when nobody knows about that band that it's really cool to you. It's just some really basic stuff that it, that that Satan knows about. Trust me, he's 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 been around us long enough to to realize our weakness in that regard. And so so this this works like this, you know. Somebody comes up and tells you, "Oh, did people tell you that um, if somebody dies right now, they go to heaven, or if they, um, if they're, you know, whatever, or if they go to hell, like as soon as they die?" Did somebody tell you that? Because that's not what the Bible teaches. So they've been teaching you some false doctrine. Do you want to know what the real truth is? Enter false teaching. Okay, so they used the 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 fact that we haven't been as clear about what the Bible actually says about hell, just because it's complicated, as we're about to find out, um, and use this theological shorthand of, yeah, okay, when you die, you go to heaven when you, or hell, which is true in one sense, but there's a lot of stuff in between there that needs to be talked about. And when I've explained this to people in the course of, you know, talking with people with various emails about this issue, they literally had never heard it before. It was completely foreign to them. And if, if they if that's what people understood about hell like from the very beginning then it would totally leave the door completely shut for the false teachers who need you to think that everybody else but you is brainwashed and believe some crazy thing but now you know the super truth 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the long version of the story of heaven and hell and what it is, what about Gehenna and Sheol and Hades and the abyss and all this stuff, how does it all work? And hopefully, if you understand what is believed by everybody, uh, then then you can't be susceptible to some of the false teachings about it. So in the Old Testament, um, there it was mostly referred to as Sheol, um, and that corresponds roughly to the Greek word in the New Testament, Hades. If you will, that's basically just the place of all dead. We're going to see later that it's separated into probably at least three parts, maybe even four parts, but at least three. Um, and that all people, when they die, go there and still do go there. Nobody is in what we would refer to as heaven and hell right now. Uh, Jesus said he's going to prepare a place for us, and when it's ready, he's going to come get us, right? So he hasn't come get us, so it's not ready yet. He says that is where, and it also speaks about, in terms of the resurrection, when it happens, there we shall always be with the Lord. So that's the beginning of it, the resurrection. And that's the dead in Christ will rise first, and then us. So the dead get raised from wherever they are currently, and then go to the new place. Okay, so nobody is in heaven right now. Um, and nobody is in what I'm going to refer to later, Gehenna right now, what is commonly referred to as hell, sometimes the lake of fire, the outer darkness. They are two different places. Let's talk about hell just specifically right now. Gehenna and Hades. Hades sometimes is even referred to as kind of like geocentric. There is a lot of reference to it being in the ground. Um, and so... I don't know if it is or if it's some kind of spiritual thing or whatever. It very well might be. It could actually be. I don't know. A good way to show that that's a distinct place than what's later referred to as the Lake of Fire or Gehenna is in Revelation 20 after what we're going to see, the Great White Throne Judgment. This is where all the unjust uh, are judged. Daniel speaks of two resurrections, that, that of the just and unjust. They're resurrected at different times, as we'll see. And they are resurrected for different purposes. But at the end of that judgment, everybody that is unjust gets thrown into uh, the lake of fire. And it says in Revelation 20:14, and the and death and hell, that word Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so this makes no sense if you don't understand this concept that Hades, those that were dead not in Christ, were thrown into this new place. Uh, after judgment, okay? So it's this Hades place is divided at least into three parts. Theologically, the people call the good part uh, paradise. Uh, they get this from Jesus saying, today you will be with me in paradise to the um, thief on the cross. Um, and sometimes it's referred to as Abraham's bosom. This is what is, you get the dichotomy in the Old Testament a little bit too, but Christ refers to it in that way in the parable of Lazarus, Lazarus and the rich man. So there is this good place, and one would say, "What? Well, all of a sudden, you're telling me there's a judgment. Those that were dead, uh, you know, that deserve to be there and deserve to be in this place." I'm about to describe the other part of Hades, um, and that is not necessarily true. It's a yes or no question, essentially. Were your sins covered by Christ or not um, is a yes or no question. It's not, it's not a value judgment on your deeds at that point. 
it's uh, are you dead in Christ, as Paul refers to it in First Thessalonians, uh, or not? The dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead not in Christ, obviously they're not going to rise later on. They wait a thousand years, as we'll see, and they get judged uh, on another point. I'm going to try to wrap this up in a, in a nice package after I get done explaining some of the details. But but those areas are separated by a great gulf. Uh, the parable makes that point that they are. there's a great deal of separation between that part of Hades, what we'll call paradise, and the part that uh, is uh, not. There is also another section of Hades called the Abyss, and perhaps that's synonymous with Tartarus. This is a place, Tartarus gives us a little bit of an example there because its reference is to a place that is very, very far below uh, Hades. Like, it, it is a much deeper place than wherever Hades is. And Hades is deep, and so Tartarus must be deeper. We don't really know, I don't really know anyway, uh, whether that's synonymous with the abyss or not. It may be. But, but one thing we do know is that both Tartarus and the abyss are spoken of as a, as a place of, uh, of prison for the fallen angels of Genesis 6. Also, in the, in the time between when... I'm going to talk about this in a minute. In the, in the time between when the Antichrist and false prophet are thrown into Gehenna and are the only inhabitants for a thousand years, Satan is not thrown in. He is actually thrown in the abyss, chained in the abyss, and, and waits a thousand years. Antichrist and false prophet don't get that luxury, but Satan does and is let out. And then ultimately after he's let out, he then is finally uh, cast into the abyss around about the same time as the, as the great white throne judgment. So already, hopefully, you're getting the sense of why people don't explain this in its full detail all the time. So let's talk about this end-time situation and how this all plays out. So, first of all, you, the dead in Christ, as Paul says, rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to be with the Lord, and there we shall always be with the Lord, right? So that's when you know Christ says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you and when and I'll return and that whole thing. So that's that's that moment. That's when we, both the dead in Christ, who lived before us from time immemorial, are going to rise out of the paradise or Abraham's bosom section of Hades and then be in this new place that Christ says, uh, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mind is comprehended what God has in store for those that love him. Okay, so we've got a great blessed hope in that. And uh, just as a side note, that's something that the early church just really, really held on to, the idea that there was indeed a resurrection, that death was not a final thing. Uh, we actually won't, uh, we, the grave can't hold us, and their proof was that they had indeed seen Christ rise too as the first, proof, uh, first fruits and proof of that resurrection that we will soon one day achieve. So that's the first part. That, then shortly, uh, right at that moment, the day of the Lord begins. This, uh, just as a shorthand thing here, is the book of Revelation. Okay, so the book of Revelation, most of the book of Revelation, let's call it after Revelation chapter 6, just to be more accurate. Um, and then up until the Battle of Armageddon. And at that point, and shortly after that, and we've got to wait a little while, the Antichrist and False Prophet are thrown into the the uninhabited lake of fire or Gehenna, okay? And it says that they will be there. This is why it gets really, really tricky to say, oh, it's just a trash dump outside of Jerusalem. It may have been used as that for poetic 
purposes, but it functionally can't be. The idea that this was just used in parables is just simply um, just a lie. I mean, if anybody's ever told you that, because it's it's you know God spoke more of Gehenna than he did of heaven, and they're certainly not all in parables. And we could talk more about that if you want to, but. The uh, thing is, they're thrown in there, and they're kept there for that 1,000-year period, what's known as the Messianic Kingdom or the Millennial Reign. Um, that is a time here on Earth where I kind of look at it, even though I don't know if it's theologically accurate, I kind of look at this as a, a, a Millennial Sabbath, 6,000 years since Adam, and we take a break. Okay, you know, lock Satan up. We'll deal with him uh, Monday basically is the way that I look at, at what's happening in that scenario. So Monday comes, another work day. Okay, let him out. Let's let's deal, deal with this guy once and for all. And they deal with him. They throw him. And he, it says where the beast and the false prophet are. Let me, uh, that's, that's like, let me just find that. Um, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay? So they go there. Then what? the next thing that happens after he gets thrown into this place where they have apparently been waiting for some amount of time, I would say exactly a thousand years, but whatever, um, then then we see this in, in the next verse, chapter or chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face... The earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, in which the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those books, which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it. And the de- and death and hell were delivered uh, up the dead, and were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so this second death is the second resurrection spoken of by Daniel, the the resurrection of the unjust. The resurrection of the just has taken place a thousand years at least, more than that at this point, before this. So those that are, are resurrected at that point... The, 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 those that are dead in Christ and resurrected to the rapture, they go to what is known as the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. Okay, This is uh, just after the rapture, uh, at least a thousand plus years before the Great White Throne Judgment. And it, you know, I've heard it described by some as it takes the place of an award ceremony. And in one sense it does. But in another sense it really is a judgment of our works. But not... Uh, not our salvific works. Uh, First Corinthians, excuse me. First Corinthians three twelve explains it well. It says, "Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For that day uh, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up." He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as so as through through fire. The idea here is that your works are going to be rewarded. If you, but if you've been doing stuff for yourself here, and you're a Christian, and your works are wood, hay, straw, stubble, they will all vanish. They've all been for nothing. That's the whole thing. 
what what works are you doing that will endure that will that will receive a reward um so your works in that day will be judged you're going to have to stand before the lord and he's going to take a look at your your uh sheet there what you've done as a christian as it says you you'll be saved through this your your, your salvation is not not an issue at the BMC judgment of Christ, but I don't like the idea that it's all just fun and games either. Um, you know, you're, you're, as it says, you will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet at the rest of fire. So your works are what's being burned at the BMC judgment of Christ. The, the works that were unprofitable, useless, as it says here, wood, hay, straw, stubble. But he, um, he whose work, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So what, work are you doing as a Christian that is enduring? That is the nature of your, uh, your reward at the, at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. So let me recap, and maybe I'll say it a different way, and maybe it'll make more sense. I know that was sort of scatterbrained there. Basically, nobody right now is in, is in the eternal heaven, the place that Jesus said he was going to prepare, and when he's ready, he's going to come get us. Nobody's there yet except for him and, you know, whoever else he wants to be. But nobody that's dead is there. And nobody is in Gehenna or the Lake of Fire yet either. That is, Those are both places prepared for after the eschatological judgments of the just and unjust at different times. Okay? So um, where everybody is right now is in what the Old Testament calls Sheol, what the New Testament calls Hades. Those are broad terms to speak of the at least three compartments of of this place. Those for the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly being uh, demonic beings. Um, so they, the first people that get out of Hades or Sheol or whatever, are the dead in Christ. They are. That happens at the resurrection. Those the dead, the dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and remain. Shall be caught up together in the clouds, and there shall ever be with the Lord. That's the first resurrection. They're out of here. They go to the beam seat judgment of Christ. Their works are judged. Uh, what did you do? What did you not do? Those that those things you didn't do that were any, weren't anything, they are burnt up. But either way, you're in. It's all good. So then uh, everything kind of completes. The Armageddon war, all that stuff happens. The Antichrist false prophet are the first inhabitants of the new place that is built for them, the Lake of Fire or Gehenna, the Outer Darkness, whatever you want to call it. They go there, first inhabitants, and then the millennium begins. Satan actually is put into the now vacant abyss where I say vacant, it may not be. I only say that is because the fifth trumpet actually says the key to the abyss is open and those demonic beings are let out. But we find that Satan is once again in prison there. So that's sort of a catch-all prison for uh, angelic beings. So anyway, whether Satan's in there with a whole bunch of other demonic beings at that point, I would say probably so. I would imagine Satan and his ministers and all the demons are, are either destroyed or in prison there too. Either way, he stays in there for a thousand years. The Antichrist false prophets stay in Gehenna for a thousand years. Once Monday comes around, Satan's let out. He does his thing and coaxes people to encamp uh, the the uh, eschatological uh, ruling city of Christ. He then destroys them, destroys Satan forever, puts him where the false uh, prophet and the and the Antichrist have been for a thousand years with their resurrected bodies. Apparently you need resurrected bodies to go to this place. Perhaps that's a requirement before you can go to either this eschatological heaven or eschatological hell is that you need resurrected bodies. And that's why nobody goes there until they get bodies. So anyway, and then that, that all pretty much then happens. And then 
Right after that, probably don't know exactly how long, the Great White Throne Judgment. That is when everybody that's left, the dead not in Christ, in Hades or Sheol, will be then taken to uh, the Great White Throne Judgment. They're going to get judged according to their deeds by the book, by the letter. All of them are going to hell. All of them are, are nobody's getting out of it. They're all going to to uh, Gehenna, the Outer Darkness, the Lake of Fire. Uh, as it says, Hades will be dumped into uh, Gehenna. And at that point, you can dump the whole thing and shake it. There's nobody left in that whole abode uh, left, except for people that uh, deserve to go there. Now, again, as I made in the last podcast, it doesn't mean that they're all getting the exact same punishment. The Bible makes that point clear, that although they're all going to the same place, it is not the exact same level of torment. And I make this case and made it in the previous uh, podcast in that, you know, Judas and uh, uh, the scribes and Pharisees and people were spoken of getting a much worse, uh, much worse for them on the day of judgment. So anyway, that is the doctrine of heaven and hell, as is believed by a majority of biblical teachers and scholars. And as you can see, it's kind of complicated. And so they just say, yeah, when you die, you go to heaven or hell. That's not entirely inaccurate. It is true, but there's just a lot of stuff in between those events. Alrighty, moving on. And sorry for the noise of my uh, CD burner here. I don't know if that's annoying to you or not, uh, but that's what's going on as I'm recording this. Moving on to a new subject of discipleship. This is something that has been on my mind for quite a little while, but even more so uh, recently after I was asked to speak at the uh, upcoming Kenya uh, Pastors Conference here in June. So one of the things that they asked me to speak about was discipleship. I've been reading books about it, a lot of the basic thoughts on discipleship and, and what it is and how it works and how to do it and all this stuff. Not terribly impressed with a lot of the books, but I got a lot of really good thoughts out of it. And so I'm just going to go over over some of the things that I've been thinking about and some of the things that I've been learning through this process. And it's been enlightening because what what is a disciple? Um, the word disciple just means follower, literally. And excuse me, it means learner, but it doesn't actually mean just a learner. It, it was used in the context, the way the Bible uses the word is the way the Greeks use the word too, a follower of. You were learning from that person, but you were principally following that person. If you're a disciple of Christ, you are a follower of Christ. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I don't like a lot of the books about programs or, you know, six-week programs of discipleship stuff, because it gives you the idea that you can just be kind of done with it. Oh, I did that. Oh, I did discipleship. Yeah, I went through that. I got a certificate and everything, because it, it's a it's it's a way of life. You, you can't be done with it. I will always be learning more about how to follow Christ more. Every time I read something in the Gospels or hear his teaching or hear about his teaching from different uh, books in the Bible, I learn more I learn more about what that means to be a follower of Christ. Christ's words are always fresh to me. Every time I read them, there's always something that it's like the first time I've read them. And that's just the nature of his words. He's always convicting. He's always showing you something new. And of course, it, it you could learn all you want to, but it's in the process of life that he's actually teaching you 
how to be a disciple. In a real sense, I mean, it's it's him that is through various things that are happening in your life. He is, if you're saved, he is working on you to become more conformed to his image. And that can be sufferings and that can be things that he's allowing in your life that can be good things, bad things, whatever. Everything is is part of the discipleship process and teaching you how to be more of a follower of Christ. Um, self-denial is so, it's so interesting how he speaks of this about discipleship. You know, if you were to ask Christ, as many people did in the Gospels, what do, what do we have to do to follow you? I want to follow you. There's lots of occasions of people saying, okay, I'll be your disciple. What do I have to do? And never does Jesus give them the answer that any evangelist would give them. He says stuff like, um, Luke fourteen twenty five says, Now great multitudes went to him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down and first count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king goes to war against another king, does not sit down first and consider what he is able, uh, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If it, it is neither fit for land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, he said in another place, uh, then he said to me, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Other places he things, says things like foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When a certain scribe asked him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus basically says, Are you sure about that? Um, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So self-denial is Jesus' answer to following him he has to be number one in our lives and let me tell you this right right out of the gates this is impossible to do just like the same scenario played out with the rich young ruler okay the, the guy said hey i'll follow you what do i got to do and jesus gives him the one thing that that guy would never do that guy had an idol of money in his life and jesus says you got to deal with that you know i i have to be number one in your life and the guy goes away sad and his disciples ask him, Lord, you know, this is hard. I mean, who then can be saved? And and Jesus says, what is impossible with man? It's impossible for this guy to be a disciple because, in this case, he's got a, a idol of, of wealth in his life or, or materialism. It's impossible for him, but it is possible with God. So I want you to know, discipleship is impossible. And the these programs and things that are done are basically to to make 
the impossible look like it has happened. Because a lot of people that maybe aren't actually saved and go to discipleship programs can learn the worldview of Christianity, learn to not do things and learn to do other things and whatever. But true discipleship is is accomplished by, first of all, your self-denial. And that's 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 really a picture of repentance. Your repentance at salvation is a denial of yourself, a denial of you being king in your life, and a an embracing and a following of Christ. That is a picture of not just salvation, but once you are saved, that's also a picture of how fast you will progress as a disciple to the degree that you're willing to obey him and 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 learn about him how do we do that of course it's through learning about his word um we learn about his way of ministry through reading of his word we learn how he we, how he lives his life the kind of character that he is these are things that you can never stop learning about him about because he's inexhaustible he he you can't say oh i heard that story about jesus before oh i heard that parable before i read through the new testament once that that doesn't that doesn't count i i am absolutely enthralled with the 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 words of christ it it's amazing how they have this quality to them that i am always convicted about there's always this thing i can't believe that's in there was that in there last time i don't think that was it's it's because I, I, it's a spiritual thing. He really is bringing things out and bringing things to light that I need when I need them. And, and you're discovering these things about him. I do think that the way we do this is through the word. I think this is what he says too. John seventeen seventeen. he says, Sanctify them. This is, this is his great prayer to the Father. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In the in the New Testament, it's always spoken about. The word is like milk. Um, we're supposed to grow thereby. First uh, Peter two verse two: As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. And many times Paul speaks of it, like in in the book of Hebrews, like we've been talking about uh, in a, in, a, in the verse by verse study, or First Corinthians three: Meat versus milk. You guys should have been, as he's talking to these guys that 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 are slow to learn or are having troubles in their in their sanctification process because they aren't studying the word he talks about it he talks about easy teachings as milk and meat as difficult things like in hebrews he's talking about the study of Melchizedek and the intricacies of that is meat you know this is stuff you should be ready for as disciples but you're not the, the reading of the word it, it's food um feed my sheep is the teaching of the word Sometimes it's 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 not just the reading of the word; it's the hearing teaching about the word, um, the feeding of the sheep there. And, and healthy sheep reproduce themselves. That's the whole idea of discipleship: is that you are creating, reproducing sheep, and healthy sheep is what you need. Now, the reason I say teachers are needed is because. Um, it is a lot of work. The Bible is too big and awesome is basically what it comes down to. The apostles, they they were actually saying, okay, we got to appoint some people to do some of the good works that we're doing. Like they were doing good things like feeding the widows and stuff. But they said, we got to find some people to do that. We need to spend our, our time studying the word. This is too awesome, too big. And if anybody has even uh, done that a little bit, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that the more that you dig in the mine of the word, the richer the ore becomes. So 
the more you put in, the more you see how much you don't know about it because it's just so awesome, so big. It could take it can one person could never could never know the Bible uh, because it is just too awesome. So my point is is that you have somebody that 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 you you know you, you gotta you gotta find good teachers. Please, please, please do that. But um, if they spend their entire week doing a study about a book of the Bible or a chapter of the Bible, let's say, something smaller, just a section of Scripture, and they, they find what the Greek is saying and they find you know all these different things and allusions and all these different things about that one section of Scripture and they do research about the historical part of it, they're building a bridge through uh, research in language and research in history and research about the culture because these things are were 2,000 years removed and sometimes some of the things get completely lost on us if we read it 2000 years later. And so to, to really get the most and therefore get the most discipleship. Okay. If you know exactly what Jesus meant when he said something to, let's say the Pharisees, then you're going to really get it and you're going to really apply it. But most of the time we don't get it because we don't, we don't even understand the allusion to the Old Testament that he's making, let alone the cultural reference. You know, Jesus says stuff to the Pharisees that just Pharisees will get because they're students of the Old Testament. And if we haven't even read the Old Testament yet, much less know anything about it, and and yet this is like sort of presupposing you do, yeah, you can get the flavor of it just by reading it. But if you know exactly what he's talking about and everything about what he's talking about there in the Old Testament, then all of a sudden that takes a whole new dimension and you get more out of him and therefore you learn more about him and are better able to follow him. Jesus said in John 8, and he spoke these words, many of them uh, believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in them, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So a lot of people quote that line, but it is talking about abiding in his word. And then when you discover what he's like, what he wants, what his personality is, how he does stuff, the, the things that he says to you in that, you need to do it. The degree that you then obey what he says is the degree that the transformation in your life will take place. It's directly proportional to your following of him the level of commitment to obey what you then find out about jesus is the level that you'll be transformed um in a book that i read by g campbell morgan he actually said that that's it's possible that that there are areas that you have completely stopped growing in because you have refused to learn the lesson refused to obey what he's taught you and therefore are not developing in certain ways perhaps it's forgiveness or bitterness or, 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 you know, various things that could be with sin and, and all kinds of issues. Learn those issues and progress. You do, he is worthy of obeying because he knows something about that obeying that we don't yet know, that there are fruits to it. He, he doesn't want us to do something that ultimately is bad for us. It is unbelievably good for us. There's so much more for him in his love to show us if we are obedient to him and what he is showing us in his word about himself and how to follow him. I would say that this doesn't end, you know, this process, and you're not going to become seasoned follower of Christ. Ignatius has a good quote. He's an early church father. I'm not really into quoting early church fathers, but he says, um, 
uh, for even though I am in bonds for the na- for the name's sake, I am not yet perfected in Jesus Christ. For now I am beginning to be a disciple, and I speak to you as to my fellow school fellows. For I ought to be trained uh, by you for the contest in faith, in admonition, endurance, in long suffering. He's talking about he's about to be martyred probably, but he's. He's talking about his discipleship is really just starting. That process is really starting. And, and that kind of will help me transition to something I've been thinking about, which is this idea of our complete lack of teaching about dying well. And the it's not as if it's a sort of an optional teaching. It's one of the most consistent themes in Scripture. It's it's something that certainly every every church or just about every church in the New Testament is dealing with and there's talking about it. But the problem I have mostly with it is that the coming apostasy, the eschatological apostasy, is tied to a great persecution. And that just shows that the, the, the greatness of the apostasy is proportional to the unpreparedness of Christians to to be able to die for their faith. And I think that that problem is directly proportional to discipleship. You know, if 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 you were given the thing, you know, before you before you uh, became a Christian, if somebody said, "Hey, can I be a Christian?" and they said, "Oh, um do you are you willing to give up everything? Do you understand like Jesus was saying about counting the cost?" No, no, don't don't just jump into this. Are you willing for Jesus to be everything in your life? Are you willing for him to be king? I mean, he is your rightful king. There's no doubt about that, whether you like him or not. But are you willing to let him be everything in your life? And and, and Jesus is like, I have to be number one in your life. No idols, no close second places. It's just me. And he will give you, as I talked about in a recent podcast, about how to love God. That's a supernatural thing that develops when you see his love for you. Um, But that heart level commitment to obedience is something different than this. And I want to say that that's the reason why we're not dying well. Um, in home group uh, recently, I was hearing and we were talking about a chaplain that says to uh, a pastor there, it's like, you guys got to start teaching your people to die well because they're not dying well. They're going out in a really poor fashion. These are just people that are dying of you know, cancer and old age and things like that that are supposedly Christians and just can't handle it. The reason is, and I don't want to belittle death because it's certainly severe and there's nothing good about it in, in that sense, but the, but the point is, um, the thing is, is that if Jesus really was, took that place in our life, then that certainly takes the sting out of death. Um, and if you were if you were busy about following Christ, learning how to follow Christ right now, that's what you you were doing. You were in the Gospels. You were learning about Christ. You were you were uh, looking for good teaching about it. I always recommend verse by verse teaching. Check out uh, the Christianity 101 DVD if you don't have it already. Uh, David Guzik is a good one. Damian Kyle, both of those have um, uh, been a big impact on me. Verse by verse teaching. So. I guess I'll leave it there, but there's just so much in the New Testament about this coming apostasy, and it's in the midst of persecution. There's not there's not a, a time that I can find that apostasy is not married to persecution. You don't just, in the midst of, of being persecuted, turn away from Christ. You'd be surprised how much the New Testament deals with that. I talked about that in a recent uh, podcast about Hebrews chapter 6. The, the New Testament and Jesus' teachings 
are about this. Uh, the last half of Matthew 10, for an example, is a sermon, as I called it in that recent one, the sermon on how to die and the consequences of not dying well. And it's a big deal. So why haven't we heard any sermons about this? Well, one of the reasons is because people don't actually believe that we're going to go through any uh, persecutions. There's a, a theological belief that that we won't. Well, they'll say something like, "Oh, well, you know, we'll probably go through some persecutions and stuff." And there's people being persecuted now, but you know, for the most part, we're going to get raptured out of here before that. And I, of course, believe in the rapture, but I believe that the earliest view of the church and the one that is of the premillennial fathers is that of imminent intertribulationalism or, or known as of pre-wrath now, and that the Antichrist has to come first, Second Thessalonians 2, and the falling away, the great apostasy must happen. The Antichrist sits in the temple, declares himself to be God, beginning that the midpoint, beginning the tribulation. The tribulation is not a seven-year thing. There's no scripture references to, at all to to say that the tribulation is a seven-year event. It begins because it is called, it's called the tribulation because of the persecution of Christians therein. Matthew 24, uh, Luke and, and Mark all discuss that time as a time of persecution of Christians. Those are dying for Jesus' namesake specifically. If that time is not cut short, there wouldn't be any elect saved because of the serious amount of, of, of Christians being killed. Yet, at some unknown time between after that midpoint, uh, it could be hours, it could be years, after that, the rapture happens and the day of the Lord begins. And we are taken out from the midst of that persecution and the day of the Lord, the begin, beginning of the wrath of God against the wicked, uh, it begins. So, there is a theological reason why we're not getting any sermons about that. All right, and so I will wrap this up with a few show notes. Uh, as I mentioned, the verse-by-verse -verse Bible teaching is back on, except it's just me uh, for the foreseeable future. Mike started a new job, which has a lot of ministry stuff involved, and so he's been pretty busy, so I'll probably just be doing verse-by-verse -verse from now on. Hopefully he'll be coming back at some point, but... Uh, the other thing is, let's see, Bible Questions TV is now on its um, f uh, eighth episode, and that's going good. Pretty good amount of response from the local Nashville area, and hope to see more uh, fruit with that soon. The other thing is Africa. Lots of new developments with that. I've been just really, at this point, a lot of research into various things. First of all, the discipleship thing. I'm about to move on to evangelism pretty soon after I write this all out about discipleship, and there's so much to consider, there's so many things to think about, but with the Africa thing, it just put out a mission statement, I guess you could call it, with about uh, 10 things that I hope to accomplish while I'm there, including the Bible-based uh, teaching for pastors, the uh, hopefully getting a copy of their own scriptures in their language, hard copies. That is a priority to be able to do that for them, is to get, uh, to get actual Bibles for them. Um, also, to produce digital copies of stuff like the Swahili Bibles and stuff like that. That's getting better. I've been really researching the Bluetooth thing. Had a lot of great input for some, from some people, too, on that. And also, I didn't think that I was going to be able to do this Treasury of Scriptural, scriptural Knowledge Concordance thing, but yesterday I had a somewhat of a breakthrough, and I think that I'm going to be able to do it. It is going to take some time. It's going to be some HTML coding, and it's going to be as opposed to Java and HTML. But I think that I can get it uh, done, and at least some people's cell phones. And that will be revolutionary. It's interesting. I was listening to a pastor's conference 
um, thing, and this guy was talking about how uh, he was talking about preaching, and somebody asked him the question, if you could have one other book besides the Bible, what would it be? And he said, hands down, the treasure of scriptural knowledge. He said, it's it, it's like a commentary. The Bible is a commentary on itself. It's just the best possible resource. And I felt vindicated that, in fact, that would be a good resource to get to him if, if possible. And as I said, it's something that, along with the Bible, the the digital Bible project is to get them the the get the word to people that that when they go back to their congregation, so they can then give this to everybody in their congregation. So not just the pastors, but the people also have access to the word. And it's cool; you can do word searches on it, and it's all Java based. So if you have a flip phone, you'll have this. Um, also, a lot of recording in Swahili. I think that I didn't know if I mentioned this last time. I think I'd mentioned that there was some J. Vernon McGee teaching, which is great. J. Vernon McGee goes basically verse by verse through the entire Bible and is through the Bible series. And at the at the time, I could only find like maybe 20 audios of that, through like Leviticus or something on, on iTunes. So I thought, well, they just did a few episodes. But lo and behold, I find that they have done the entire series in Swahili. And what's interesting about that is that's the only Swahili teaching I can find. And it just ha- so happens to be you know, a pretty good guy that I, that I support J Vernon McGee. Um, so pretty awesome with that. And, uh, working with, uh, my friend Ivan to get that all, um, downloaded and stuff like that. So that should be a pretty cool thing. I don't know the best way to distribute all that stuff. A new idea has, uh, come up. And again, this is all if I even, if I have the money to do it, but they, they've got these FM transmitters that are like a hundred dollars. And if I can get one of those, I think that at least in the town that I'm going to be at, Eldoret, you could put that in a church steeple or something like that, and it would cover the entire city. And in America, it's it's legal. This is kind of low-power FM. And all you'd have to do is plug up one of these solar-powered MP3 players to it. You could just you could just play the Bible over and over or these J. Vernon McGee teachings over and over, you know, indefinitely. And the thing about it is it solves the problem of how are you going to get this information to as many people because – you don't have to distribute MP3 players or anything because they all have radios and the, and the buses and the cars. People have radios, so so you've solved that problem and you just you've basically just created a radio station. So I'm excited about that project. Still looking into it more. Um, uh, and then so also to record a lot of audio. That is to um, to go around. I'm actually just found out that I'm going to be. Uh, going to Uganda and some other places as well. The conference is, is in Kenya, but then I'll be traveling to Uganda after the conference to visit other churches, to visit other pastors and stuff that can't make it and stuff. So because I'm going to be able to be there a long time, um, we're going to be able to do a lot more. So in that process, I hope to record a lot of teaching, get with people that I can record, and maybe different dialects to also have that teaching on there. Uh, as I mentioned, I'd like to get... I'd like to get... Oh, I, I need... <laughs> I mean... If anybody wants to donate actual items, I need, um, for myself, I need some kind of video camera to actually record the documentary that I want to do with it, uh, I, or whatever, or the, the, you know, I'm sure that I could get, get one with, at a pretty decent price too in that way, but there's also a need for, um, the person, the bishop who here, uh, who's over, and I say bishop, not in the Catholic sense, just in the New Testament sense, over these churches or over most of the churches. I'd like to get him the material to kind of maintain some of this stuff and get him a laptop 
and stuff. He has access to the internet. He has access to a lot of this stuff. So I'd like to get him just a small kind of Acer laptop or something like that so he can uh, deal with the file transfer stuff and, and, and take this Bluetooth thing I've got and go to the different pastors when he visits them and to give them the different uh, things so they don't have to. He could do a lot of stuff if he has that. And also... Um, what else would uh that's as far as materials that's all i need would need as far as things um and like i mentioned the video documentary this is for the mission the missionaries that i'll be staying with a majority of the time they, they've been over there for a long time and the guy is like 80 something years old he's getting up up there but he's got a wealth of knowledge about a lot of the very intricate stuff that they're doing and so the missionary team that went there last time was lamenting the fact that he's basically at some point or another, you know, when he does actually die, uh, he's, he's in good health and everything. He's a great guy, but um, I guess that doesn't have anything to do with his health. But you know what I mean? That he'd like to get all that stuff in an interview, to get all his knowledge down and to create a documentary, also to work with them and produce some materials for kids to just do some translation stuff for videos and stuff for them while, while I'm there. And a few other projects have yet to kind of hash it all out with them. Um, the other thing is, is just whatever, to be a blessing to Africa in any way I can to keep my eyes and ears open in case there's something else that I'm not thinking about that the Lord wants to impress upon my heart. So all this stuff, as you can just hear, it requires money and, and I, I, we've got plenty of time and I've got all the faith in the world just because of the, uh, because of the confirmations, I really do feel like I'm supposed to go and to, and to do all this stuff. And if you do feel led, all of the donations are tax deductible. We'll send out a you know a letter afterwards so you can use it for your tax records and stuff like that. So anyway, just keep me in your prayers about that. I really think that um, I could make an impression on Africa in some way or another, whether it's through the technology thing or whether it's through the reproduction of materials or the teaching or the radio stations or, or whatever. I'd really like to especially with the teaching of the pastors. I don't want that to just be a minimal part of it. I want to to really do faithful research into these things like evangelism and the gospel and you know there's a lot of belief in sort of prosperity gospel stuff there and I want to I want to be uh sober and and vigilant about it just being faithful and and that way the Lord can bless it if he chooses. So thank you for listening. If you've got any questions, you can go to my website, Nowhere to Run Radio or chriswhiteministries.com. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at nowheretorunradio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.